Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de Lomatroc, and Ina Corio. And it's been a kind of a little while since I've recorded. Um, I've been reading Valerie Shearer's uh, stories, also known as Night Nightbird 47. She was a friend of mine. She's the one who quoted, uh, typos grow in the dark. <laughs> and I think she was right. Well, she passed this last year. And I um, always kind of wanted to do an episode with her where we could discuss um, the exile and the doctor and this one pro um, project we never quite finished called Purgatory, where um, it started, we, d we did it over Instant Messenger. Yeah, that was back in the day. And we would each write from a point of view. So I was Dr. Bashir's point of view and she was uh, Nina Nabrantain's point of view, and this was in the Dominion internment camp. And it was interesting because both of, you know, usually you stay in one point of view per scene, but we were doing two by two different writers. So it was almost a word, uh, a role play of a, of a story, but it was very interesting that way. It got complicated when we added a third person and then got too, um, the plot got maybe too big and it didn't stay this um, conversation between the two and it, and it just kind of fizzled out. But it started really cool and if I could still have it somewhere, I might um, record it and put that out there. That sound you just heard was a very large cat. Um, not a super large cat. He's not a full-blood Maine Coon, but jumping off of me. <laughs> he had trapped me here for, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, and that's why I decided to do an episode today, because I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> so, um, now that he's down, I'm going to shut the door. I do have other things I need to do tonight, but he, I've already gotten started, so I guess he thought I wasn't paying him enough attention. He's gone. His name is Vinny, by the way, short for Bjuskvinja. He is possibly part Maine Coon, but fairly long, tall, long-haired, but not super long. Not quite medium either, though. It's more toward long. Um, long-haired gray cat. He's, uh, he's a big guy, but he's super lubby. But he doesn't care what you're doing when he suddenly assaults you for love. And I say assault because when a 11, 12-pound cat suddenly jumps on your chest while you're sitting down, <laughs> it's an assault. But it's not a mean assault. It's one where he just wants to love on you and knock your glasses off your face and snuggle in your hair and that sort of thing. So um, he is now gone. And we'll look to what we're going to read today. And I decided I'm going to keep on with the Star Trek Deep Space Nine stories for now, though I may branch, and definitely the shorter ones, um, I may branch into some of the other fandoms after I get done with DS9. So this story is called The Archway Children. I do not think that I have read it at all before, so it's going to be new to all of us, I guess. Well, let's get started. I wish I had read that one through. Um, there were some 
typos and little things here and there. She didn't break it up into um, scenes real clearly. So it was hard for me to, <laughs> I, I'd run it like, is this a scene? Or I would run into that typo and then mess up and then have to go back and fix it. Um, they're not big things, but for instance, the master would not put out a boy he choose to rescue. It should be he chose, so an extra O. Um, not big things. It doesn't take away from the idea of the story, the plot of the story. So this was inspired by the children of a shelter. And what I think she was getting at was that point at the end, well, toward the end, that these were still children. They got to hold on to childhood where he felt he did not. And even though they were pushed out into the, you know, the archway, they were kind of out of society. They got to have childhood. They got to play. And there were some adults that kind of cared for them somewhat, at least. They cared for each other. And he was rather jealous of them. He had a home and warmth and safety, in a sense, but it was one of stress and constant threat. So they didn't have warmth and safety, but they weren't under that same kind of stress and threat. He can't really be a child where he is with Inabrantain. So this is a look at Inabrantain's um, hold over Garrick. It wasn't perfectly set out in the show. We'd, I believe, heard of Inabrantain up until the point where we were in, um, the, they showed us in Tournament Camp 371. That's where we really met Inabrantain. He was the head of the Obsidian Order on Cardassian. And so that's the head of their spy agency. And he was a tough cookie. And um, Cardassians are, are tricky anyway. Um, my brother would say back when we were doing the Honored uh, Chapter 2 and we were talking about everybody, um, he said they were slippery like little wet catfish. <laughs> so he was a child then. He's not now. But... Um, they are kind of slippery, so it's like Garrick take away all the entertaining parts. He's more threatening. Um, but you can see that Tane cared for him. And that Inabrin at one time had cared for Garrick. But Garrick had been exiled for some reason they never got into. And he wanted forgiveness from Tane, but he didn't get it. Tane was uh, sick. He was an old man who was sick um, with heart issues while they were in um, internment camp 371. So Worf and Garrick come across this scene where they see the um, Cardassians were actually caught, you know, this whole fleet was caught by the Dominion, and they get caught, and they get put in this internment camp, and lo and behold, Dr. Bashir is there, and Inabrantain is there, and that's how we get to see this, so there's some moments where it's just Inabrantain uh, and Garrick talking, 
So we get a little bit more of their relationship, but it's not what Garrick wants. And Inabertain was working in the hole in the wall to try to adjust some of the circuitry so that they could get a message out or um, use it as a transport or something. Um, but now he's too sick to do so. But then Garrick showed up. Well, Garrick is claustrophobic, but he's the one who can possibly do this. So he has to shimmy into the space and be in the dark and close. Yeah, so, and Abrantain does die in that episode, and he never gives Garrick the kind of absolution he wants, and it's kind of implied that Tain is Garrick's father, but it's never said outright. And Garrick has grown quite a lot in his time on Deep Space Nine and his friendship with Bashir. He's still... He's still slippery. He's intimidating to write, honestly. Um, but he does translate Cardassian messages when the Cardassians become um, allies of the Dominion. He translates for the Federation so that they can read messages, you know, and he's like their enigma machine. Um, he fights on the side of the Federation and the Romulans. He helps get the Romulans into the war. That's where you see he's still darn slippery. So he's not, his moral compass is not pointing all the way good. It's more like it's toward the bad, but leaning that way. <laughs> um, he takes, you know, Cisco's uh, moral compass down with him, but uh, they get the Romulans into the war. Um, and he stays all the way through to the end of the war, and Cardassia is um, is beaten. It's occupied, and now there becomes a free Cardassia at the end. And Andrew Robinson, who played Garrick, wrote a really, really interesting book um, covering this time and letters to Doctor Bashir, correspondence. Um, so this is Valerie's take on his childhood and relationship with Tane being more of a master who brought in, took in his mother and him when he was young, but he holds a power over them and he can throw them out at any time. So it's a much more, hmm, you get no feelings that he could possibly be a father in this. But it's an interesting look at the thrown away children of Cardassia in the time when Garrick was young. So this is fully in the military Cardassian state, um, well before the, in a sense, revolution, revolution that uh, brought around, um, you know, the free society we see in at the end. But there's also, you know, um, and he goes through it in his book, and Robinson does, this time before the military state, where they had, you know, a, a religious sect and other things, and it was a much different time, so this is like ancient Cardassia. So, if you're interested in Cardassians, this is a, an interesting take on the um, 
and the Obsidian Order. The uh, an interesting take on Tane and Garrick's relationship from Garrick's point of view, but also I would look for um, A Stitch in Time by Andrew Robinson as a novel, and it's it's really good. I think he did an audiobook of it too, and I think he did the reading. So he did some readings in <coughs> conventions, and um, when we would have lunch with the doctors and the rap party and stuff, he would do some readings for our group. Um, he's a really nice guy. All right, well, I think that will close it, and I hope that you will let Valerie know, well, Valerie's son, she's gone, but his son is there, and he gave, I gave him the username and password to the email I set up for Valerie, and let him know what you think of his mother's story. That email is nightbirdvs at gmail.com. That's N-I-G-H-T-B-I-R-D-4-7. No, excuse me, it's not, not 4-7. V as in victory, S as in Sam or Valerie Shearer at gmail.com. If you'd like to drop me a line, use inhildi at gmail.com. That's I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I at gmail.com. You can find me on Mastodon at at inhildi, spelled the same way. And you can find my profile on AO3 by looking for that name, inhildi. And there you can find my pen names, Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Quadriel, and Philippe Tavalmatrock. So, thank you, and uh, I'll keep this one short. You have a good day, and we'll see you again soon. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Archway Children, by Nightbird47. This story is dedicated to the children who pass through the City of Hope shelter in Corona, California, and their brothers and sisters in other places who helped inspire this story. The boy hovered in the shadows cast by the curved wall of the passageway, eyes fixed on the large, rough-hewn arch that filled the closed-off end of the square. Pressing close to the dark wall behind him, he willed himself to be invisible. He knew how to vanish. It had been the primary lesson of his upbringing. Glints of light, betraying movement, danced in the somber square. He waited silently and patiently, skills born in the shadows of the hallways of the empty rooms at home. Slowly, the archway children forgot about the odd shadow and moved into the half-light of dusk. He watched, measuring the differences. They were little. Were they young or were some older but with bodies shrunk by the reduced life they lived? Some wore rags, others covered themselves in the discarded clothes of the season's cleaning. A few dressed in the garments of well-off Cardassian children, only now a little old and, and dirty. The best-dressed ones looked quite pleased with themselves. The boy felt his clothes, so new, so proper. He saw no adults. Each time he passed, he watched the, the archway children, but they were always alone. He hoped someone would return to take them home. He'd run that day, bolting from the words he'd overheard while hiding in the storm in the sitting room. He'd run to the archway children, afraid and hopeful and lost. Others passed through the square, neither seeing nor wanting to see. The children and those hiding unseen were simply blemishes in an orderly society. Some would drive them away. Others spared them a brief flash of pity. He watched as everyone hurried past, running from the remainder of what might be. Skirting the shadows, he edged closer. 
he had to know how the children spent their days. Lost in the crumbling recesses of the arch was an illusion of home. The smoke of fires drifted from the darkness. The smell of roasting food made him hungry. Like the creatures they fed upon, they were despised. They were ignored and tolerated, but they were there, and none wanted to see the image of their own children in the faces should someday a question arise about the loyalty of the family to the state. The boy tried to shut out the words. I should put you out, mother's master had said. He would abandon the unfathered child she had borne as well. Melting into the harsh light of dusk, he drew closer. He could see others now, adults in the same assortment of rags and abandonments. A little joy touched him to know the children were not alone, but he understood. Those who passed by would see an adult, and they would be reminded. Then someone might banish them from the meager place they had carved out for themselves. So they hid, as did he. He'd heard about how they survived. Sometimes they stole or lived off the unwanted leavings of society, or they sold themselves for a meal or a bit of shelter for the night. But here and there were places they had made home. They never disappeared. He watched them everywhere he went, quick glances as he passed while, towed away by those who did not notice. Like the archway children, he was a boy, but no longer a child. The master had threatened to send him away before, but this time he was certain they'd be put out. His little room and bed, his well-laid-out clothes, his plentiful meals teased at his mind. Would these meager children push him away? He moved again, not as carefully, emboldened by the fear and the need to see everything. Amid their ruined life, they were playing a game. It was rough, and he could not make out any rules, but fascinated, he could not look away. Most of all, their laughter drew him close. No one laughed or smiled at home. There was neither disobedience nor happiness. He had no words to understand what that was. But their small bodies and worn clothes made him afraid. Mother obeyed. He shrank into invisible space, always listening, always seeing a place to hide. Would mother someday be forced to choose between her son and her master? She had seen the archway children, too. He feared she would choose survival. I should send you away now, the master had repeated. With those words, he had run, but he'd heard enough. He didn't know what he'd done to make mother afraid, but the words were his fault. He had walked from the shadows into the hazy night. Now he could see the whole game. One boy, a little taller than the rest, had flattened something under his arm. Dodging and doubling back in the small space, the others chased him, the smaller children in little bunches. The boy yearned to play. For a heartbeat, he almost dashed after them, legs straining against a deep-seated caution which held him back. Then the target made a wrong turn. He was caught between two older boys and four little ones. All of them went down in a heap. After a brief struggle marked by flailing arms and legs, one of the smaller children emerged with a tangled knot of rags under her arm. The winner was fast and agile and ducked under the taller boys trying to catch her. The boy leaned towards them, following the girl with absolute fascination that shut out everything else. But suddenly his view was blocked by one of the players. The archway boy stood calmly watching the interloper. The boy's own fear met the archway boy's defiance. He backed into the shadows again, no longer violating their world. He never defied anyone. He didn't dare. 
In a small way, he envied the street waif. He still watched their game. The children tumbled into the rough corners, but always picked themselves up without a fuss. Strength was important in his culture, and forbearance even more honored. At least the children belonged a little. The archway children, who still claimed a measure of childhood, rolled and played their game. They saw, but did not see, the boy as was the course of all their days. He was excluded. But tomorrow, or perhaps the next time trouble came and the threat was repeated, then the spell was broken. Tolon, the master of the riding hounds, grabbed his arm. Master Tain is much displeased, but I believe that he shall be relieved that you have been found. Hope lived. The master would not put out a boy he chose to rescue. Not this time. Mother would be angry, but she would welcome him back. The boy let himself be led home. The archway children watched as he passed by their world. Tain was waiting. He stood, tall and stern, and Garrick never forgot that the man was also his master. You will not disobey me, boy. Perhaps you will have little time to entertain such thoughts from now on. I will be keeping you very busy. The boy wondered if he would, was to be an apprentice or a slave. If you disobey me, I will put you out. The boy knew how to humble himself without sacrificing all pride. Tain could not tolerate that. He promised obedience. Then he was dismissed. Mother was relieved. He knew she had been afraid and then grateful, but it was not his people's way to be open about such things. He loved Mother, but the power to keep them safe, to banish the threat of the ragged life, was entirely in the hands of Inabrin Tain. It was a lesson Garrick would never forget. Thank you.